Hi everyone and welcome back to the second edition of Shadi's World Short Story Podcast. Yay! I think I've probably got about three more podcasts left to share with you. So I hope you're enjoying what you've heard so far. Today's short story is called The Painting and will be narrated by the amazing Donna Kroll. I was so lucky and fortunate for her to come down to the studio and record this for me. Anyway, I wrote this story several years ago. In fact, it's actually the very first story I adapted into a screenplay. The screenplay obviously is very different or I wouldn't say very different, I would say slightly different from the short. It's still in development. Um well, what can I say? I wrote it in 2 weeks. So, hence the reason it needs a little bit of TLC to, to get it to the next level. But uh, what I will say in my defense is that it was the first adaptation I wrote and I'll leave it at that. But anyway, without further ado, here's Donna narrating The Painting. The woman at the sink was humming a Polish lullaby and gazing at the ginger cat that had just climbed the apple tree in her garden. The cat stretched and wagged its tail with disdain before settling down to stare back at the woman washing her dishes. Inside the kitchen, the woman's four-year-old blonde daughter, Luciana, sat at a rustic wooden table, banging cutlery against her almost empty plate. Drink! 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 she cried unrelentingly. No, responded her mother. No more drink for you. Drink! screamed Luciana. Her eyes were dry as a desert and her wails increasing in volume. Incensed at her mother's refusal, she threw her cutlery and plastic plate across the linoleum floor and watched the congealed contents splatter over the black-and-white parquet effect before starting up again. Drink! 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 I no hear you, I no see you, said her mother, as she continued to wash the pots and stare at the cat. Her humming manically rose over Luciana's caterwauling as she tried to steel herself against her daughter's tears. Suddenly the wailing stopped and the mother breathed a sigh of relief. I want Papa, said Luciana, who had spotted her father tiptoeing through the kitchen door towards her mother, holding a finger to his lips. Papa is coming home soon, and then he take you sleep. Since you no eat your food, all you do is drink, drink, drink. You must eat too. She responded to her daughter, her nerve still frazzled from the battle of wills. Papa! Yes, daddy is coming soon, she replied, with her back still to her daughter. A pair of hands lightly covered her eyes from behind, and she jumped involuntarily, I love you, her husband whispered into her ear. She laughed. (laughs) I love you too. Now go and take your troubled daughter. First I must kiss my wife, hello. She turned and melted into his arms, raising her face for his kiss. At first Luciana watched with interest. As the kiss grew in length, She started to bang on the table again, demanding her parents' attention. Papa, 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 she chanted. Unable to ignore their daughter, they gently pulled apart. Let me put her to bed, then we continue after you have seen new painting I buy you. New painting? He put a finger on her lips. 
Yes, good painting. The woman rolled her eyes as her husband turned his attention to their blonde daughter, who was now smiling with the charm of a cherub, as she held her arms out to be carried. He picked her up with ease and twirled her round in a circle. Luciana squealed with delight and wanted more, but her father gave her a big sloppy kiss and held her tight. Her face burrowed into the side of his neck. You heavy now, he jokingly quipped. As he turned to leave the room, Luciana raised her head from her father's neck and stuck her tongue out at her mother, who just shook her head with tired resignation at her daughter's antics. The woman took one last look at the cat, who was staring at the family portrait framed by the window, and followed them out of the kitchen into the living room. She spied the canvas swathed in brown paper and tied with string. She picked up the heavy frame and wondered what the painting was and was just about to open the package when her husband's voice echoed down from the bathroom. No looking at painting! She smiled. He knew her so well. She put the canvas down and went to set the table. Behind her, a gentle gust of wind from inside the canvas blew the paper outwards and it swelled up like a microwaved bag of popcorn before it settled back down into place. The cat watched from its perch on the apple tree. The house overlooked the River Thames in a fashionable part of Hammersmith, a place where family homes were sought after. As the only detached house on the street, it stood aloof amidst the rows of semis, Dense, shiny brown-green ivy climbed the walls and fanned out around the house like fingers in a stranglehold. First impressions do count, and over the years the strangling ivy had put off many potential tenants as they came to view number 40 Bestland Street. In the front garden was an apple tree which had ceased to bear fruit 25 years prior. It was withered with age and its naked branches hung low, like an old hag's breasts devoid of milk. Sparse umber grass fought a losing battle with the gravelled path leading to the blue door. The gate that guarded the path had almost come off its hinges and creaked every time it was swung open. The estate agent had only just hired someone to fix it after the last tenant had disappeared without a trace. A young Polish couple that had immigrated to London in search of a better life like all the other tenants who had gone before them, they hadn't even bothered to ask for their deposit. They'd paid for three months and stayed for three days. Debbie Cade looked at her Rolex for the umpteenth time and wondered where her client was. She was in a hurry to hand over the keys to this particular property. No one at Bridge and Sons wanted anything to do with the house. It engendered an atavistic fear. So whenever there was a viewing of the property, she had dubbed the goose house, on account of the fact that every time she entered she got goosebumps, lots were drawn, and she always drew the short straw. Her colleagues had been known to phone in sick whenever a viewing was coming up, and they came up quite regularly. It was only March, and already they'd had a substantial number of viewings. The potential tenants were normally migrant workers from Eastern Europe, or illegal immigrants from Afghanistan, Somalia or Eritrea who were so desperate for a roof that they didn't question the low rent. 
They ignored the inner voice that sensed the malevolence entombed in the goose house because for them it was better to sleep within four walls than on the streets of London. However, no one stayed long enough to enjoy the four walls. No one but her seemed to think it strange that every tenant who had ever rented the property had disappeared without a trace, with the front door usually left wide open. Apart from the once, a very long time ago, 25 years ago exactly to the day, a postman on his rounds heard a child screaming for her parents. He called the police who found the door locked and bolted from the inside, with the alarm still on. The half-starved child was the only occupant... Her parents had disappeared without a trace. The media went into a frenzy of speculation, but no one could come up with a reasonable explanation. A nationwide manhunt didn't yield any bodies or any answers either, and eventually people forgot as life turned the page to another chapter. Debbie Cade never forgot, even though she was terrified of the Goose House, especially after what happened to her. Something inexplicable drew her back again and again. She'd been ten when she'd first jumped on a bus with her best friend Janet and stood outside looking, waiting, and imagining what had happened behind the closed doors. Apart from a prowling cat that hissed at them, she saw nothing. At some point she thought she saw a woman in the upstairs window with long flowing hair who looked somewhat like the portrait of her great-grandmother, Elizabeth, by the time she blinked, the image had disappeared and she tried to put it down to her vivid imagination. But she couldn't forget the piercing eyes that burned through her soul. After that day, a woman's haunting screams invaded her dreams and although her mother moved them back to Wavery, no matter how far away they went, the piercing eyes followed her like a bride's veil. Lady Elspeth's lady-in-waiting could not open the oak door that guarded her mistress's inner chamber. It was locked from the inside. The screams that escaped from the space between the floor and the heavy door curdled her blood as she pushed ineffectually against the barred entrance. The screams brushed past the maid and floated down the stairs, passing portraits of a long-gone generation, staring impassively back through time. As if alive, the scream gathered momentum and crashed past the servants fearfully gathered at the bottom of the marble staircase and headed for the front door, which was wide open. It passed into the darkness, its resonance eventually dissipating into the brooding night. The butler, a man of considerable strength, who had gone to fetch something to help pry the door open, came charging back with a huge log destined for one of the many fireplaces in the great house. Behind him was a footman in his nightshirt, carrying an axe and an oil lamp. His lordship was away in the colonies, tending to the family's plantations, and his return home had been imminent for several months. As some of the other servants crept to the top of the stairs to watch the butler and the footman try to force their way into the room... They were not only fearful of what was happening behind the closed door, but also the reaction of their master once he returned. He was well known for his explosive temper. Lady Elspeth was in delicate health since she'd lost her fourth child. They reckoned that Elizabeth, her only surviving child, is what had kept her tethered to reality.
News had filtered down that Elizabeth was lying in the nursery and not expected to last the night. The footman and the butler shoved the crying lady in waiting out of the way and heaved the log against the sturdy door. The door shook slightly but refused to open. Hands, red raw with cold and splinters, heaved again and again. Despite the winter chill that pervaded the hall, sweat trickled down their faces. Visionless eyes blinked away moisture, tongues flicked up and the taste of sweat mingled with a taste of abject fear. Without warning, the screaming stopped. Everyone momentarily froze. They were so used to the screams that the sudden silence implied something which, although unvoiced, was examined in the seclusion of their individual thoughts. Just as they were about to resume their siege with renewed vigour, the lock clicked and the door swung slightly ajar. The log stopped in mid-air as they went rigid. The only movement was that of their eyes as they flickered towards the lady-in-waiting. The butler imperceptibly inclined his head towards her, indicating she should enter her lady's chamber first. Not a particularly brave woman, her eyes dilated with dread, as acid mixed with the contents of her stomach bringing a sour taste to her mouth. Taking a deep breath, she knocked briefly, then eased the door open. Without waiting for response, she stepped into the room. Despite the healthy fire glowing in the fireplace, the atmosphere in the bedchamber raised the flesh on her arms and made the hairs on the back of her neck stand up. She rushed over to the four-poster bed which dominated the room, expecting to see her mistress behind its curtained recess. She wasn't there, and neither was she in the antechamber. The butler and the footman entered the room at her frantic calling and joined in the search. Not that there were many places to look. They looked at the open window, then at each other, before rushing to the what they presumed to be the portal of death. They leaned out, expecting to see their mistress's broken body. But all that lay below were hibernating flower beds, covered with a sprinkling of frost. Behind them, the painting hanging on the wall moved slightly, as if blown by a gentle gust of wind. Then it gently settled back into place. The twinkling stars, shaped like an eye, shone a little bit brighter against the black, painted night. Luciana's father put his arms around his wife from behind and breathed in her scent. She turned round in his embrace and, standing on tiptoe, hooked her arms around his neck. She's sleeping now? she asked him with an eyebrow arched. Mm, finally. So now you show me painting. No, now we say hello, he responded, nuzzling her neck. You sure she's sleeping? Darling. Okay, we say hello, and you show me painting we not afford. Papa! screamed Luciana from her room. So she's sleeping, huh? Okay. So she no sleeping. Papa! Go! Shooed away by his wife, Luciana's father slunk off to make sure his daughter went to sleep. Shaking her head with an indulgent smile, she picked up the painting and trudged up the stairs to their bedroom. 
Too impatient to wait for the ceremonial unveiling, she tore off the brown paper to reveal a black painted night with twinkling stars shaped like an eye. She put the painting against the wall and stood back to stare at it. As she stared at the twinkling stars, it seemed that they grew brighter and moved closer. Unsettled by the eye, she turned the painting against the wall. As the light hit the back of the canvas, she saw what looked like a woman's face, her mouth wide open in a silent scream. She took a step back, stifling a gasp of terror as the hairs on the back of her neck stood ramrod straight. But when she looked again, the face had disappeared. Unsure of whether her eyes were fooling her or not, she tentatively leaned closer and stretched a shaky hand towards the canvas. No, I tell you, wait for me. She jumped at the sound of her husband's voice behind her as she whirled round to face him. Unseen by either of them, a single eye blinked from the canvas. Luciana want mummy, piped the sleepy voice of her daughter who held out her arms to her mother. Forgetting about the painting, her mother sighed and touched her daughter's forehead. Her wanting mummy usually was the forerunner to a slight temperature or some major manipulation, like wanting to sleep in the same bed as mummy and daddy. Temperature was normal, which meant only one thing. She wished she was a firmer mother, but she always eventually gave in. Her husband raised his eyebrows. She shrugged her shoulders as if to say, what can I do? Then cuddled up to her daughter on the double bed. Luciana loved mummy. And Papa, she beamed at her father as if she sensed his outrage of being usurped by his four-year-old. He smiled and picked up the painting. He wandered over to the wall opposite the window of their bedroom and held up the canvas to see if it was a suitable fit. Not liking the angle, he moved it back to the wall opposite the bed. Luciana, who still hadn't fallen asleep, saw the painting and started crying at the unblinking starry eye, staring back with malfeasance. We no like painting, said Luciana's mother. Why you no like? It's good painting. Painting make me scared. It make me think someone is watching us. No one is watching. It's just painting. The woman said it's sign for good luck. Luciana no like painting, said Luciana bussing into her parents' conversation. "'Is painting,' responded her mother, automatically correcting her. "'Ainting,' Luciana repeated. "'C'est pas, like papa or paper,' said her mother patiently. "'Papa,' she said obediently. "'Now, painting.' "'Ainting. I not like it, mummy,' still ignoring the essential P. Well, Luciana should sleep in own bed tonight. That way she no see painting, said her father, with a nail in his mouth, as he held up the painting against the wall to make sure he had the correct positioning. Luciana started to sob again in earnest, which earned her father a disapproving look from his wife. She got out of bed and carried Luciana to her room, kicking her husband's calf as she walked past him, his outraged look turned into a smile as soon as the door closed behind her. 
As he put the painting down, a gust of wind blew across the room. It had been an overcast day, and what was left of the pale sun was fast disappearing into a mauve sky. She looked at her watch again and sighed. Debbie Cade had already been waiting by her car for almost two hours and wanted to go home to her on-and-off-again boyfriend. She wasn't much of a cook, but it was her turn to make dinner, which she decided was going to be a pasta dish of some description, the sauce she would buy from her local supermarket. Alessandro, with his fastidious eating habits, didn't need to know it came out of a bottle. She had big plans for dessert. She'd spent her lunch break shopping for the right lacy outfit. Now all she needed was for her client to turn up so she could surrender the keys. The original arrangement had been for Lucy James, the new occupant, to pick up the keys from the office, but the pile-up on the A40 put paid to that idea, which meant, once again, Debbie had drawn the short straw. She looked at the goose house, shrouded in darkness, and shivered as she remembered her encounter. She had not been inside the house since the incident. Debbie opened the creaking gate to number 40 Bestland Street and ushered her next set of potential clients up the newly weeded path. She silently promised herself that the next time a viewing came up, she was going to call in sick. And the rent is £70 a week, asked the man as he disbelievingly surveyed the house and the street. You are sure it is £70? Yes, I'm sure responded Debbie, her patience already at straining point, having answered the same question several times. I'm just making sure. I don't want we move in and you charge us more. We can't do that, said Debbie. Good, then we take it. Uh, but you haven't seen inside. You really need to explore the interior before you make a decision. Ten of us share one room in Barking. Ten of us share house is better. But for you still, we will look... Relieved, Debbie fished a set of keys from inside her back and opened the front door to the musty smell of a lifeless house. She'd given up on air fresheners and freshly cut flowers after her fourth tenant disappeared. As the ad says, it's a three-bedroom house. The bedrooms are on the first floor, and we'll go up there in a moment. Down here you have the kitchen, lounge and guest lavatory. Debbie led them into the kitchen. As you've probably noticed, the house hasn't been decorated in a while. However, all the plumbing and central heating works. She walked over to a tap and opened it to a gush of water that splattered all over her. <laughs> As you can see, the water pressure is very good here. She delved into her bag, looking for some tissue to wipe the excess water off her hand-embroidered skirt. Her potential tenant gallantly handed her a white folded handkerchief with the letter L embossed in the corner. My wife, she make it for me, he responded to Debbie's hesitant look. Oh, thank you, she said, taking the handkerchief from him. I didn't realise you were married, she continued, as a picture of a harried woman with eight children popped into her head. She not here yet. I work hard and send money home. Soon she come and join me, so I need good house. Oh, that's nice, she responded weakly. So this must be your son, she asked, looking at the second of the duo. No, he family friend. My child he killed. I'm sorry for your loss, said Debbie, beginning to regret coercing them into the viewing. She should have just taken the deposit, handed over the keys and gone back to the office. Debbie looked out of the window, waiting for the awkward moment to pass. 
and caught sight of a ginger cat which lay curled at the base of the shriveled apple tree. The hairs on her nape stood up straight. She turned away from the piercing eyes and led them away from the kitchen and up the stairs to the bedrooms and bathroom. She went through the motions, starting with the smallest room, opening each door slightly and standing outside as the two men walked in and admired the rooms. I'll be downstairs if you need anything, she said, leaving them as they walked into the master bedroom, a room she always avoided entering if she could help it. Just as she reached the bottom of the stairs, the two men shot out of the room and pelted down the stairs two at a time, headed for the front door. We no want any more, said the client, his voice slightly high. She looked at him and glimpsed what she thought were the remnants of fear in his eyes. His friend's eyes were bulging at the sockets and he was breathing as if he was about to hyperventilate. Her potential tenant grabbed his friend and pulled him out of the house. Disappointment filled Debbie as she watched them hurtle down the path. The gate squealed open and shut behind them, and she wondered how she was going to avoid the next showing. The sudden meow from the cat that was now perched on the bottom doorstep made her jump out of her skin. She slammed the door, her heart in her mouth. Although it was very bright outside, the interior had suddenly darkened, and an eerie chill overcame her. The everyday sound of a car horn tooting and a woman hurrying a child along brought her to her senses. She shook her head and rolled her eyes at her fear and decided to brave the master bedroom to make sure her potential tenants hadn't left a window open. She hesitantly climbed the stairs. The bedroom door was closed. A tentative hand rested on the knob as if she was expecting an electric shock. Nothing happened. Shaking her head with a wry smile, she swung the door open with a flourish, as if to belie her pounding heart and sweaty palms. As soon as she entered the room, she felt a gentle breeze. She looked over to the window and noticed that it wasn't open. Two parallel lines appeared on her brow as she bit down on her lip. A stronger breeze blew the bangs in her hair. She looked up, thinking the breeze was coming from a hole in the ceiling. All she saw was a spider's web in the corner and the dangling circa 1950s light fixture. She decided her sanity was more important than finding the source of the breeze, so she headed for the door. Although a part of her sensed someone watching, the sane part of her brain told her she was in the room alone. As she crossed in front of the painting, she had avoided looking at, because it always made her feel uncomfortable... Another gust of wind whipped her hair across her face and into her eyes, making her eyes stream. Her eyes smarted and her vision blurred. She frantically dabbed her eyes with the handkerchief she'd been given earlier. As her vision cleared, she looked around the room, sure she was going to see Tim from the office with a big wind machine and a silly grin on his face. Even though she knew it was implausible, it was the only sane explanation she could think of. But there was no Tim jumping out of the wardrobe and shouting, Gotcha! Slowly, like a marionette doll, her head inexorably turned towards the painting she'd been trying to avoid. The twinkling stars gazed harmlessly back, and she let out a small giggle at her overactive imagination. At a loss as to why she had scared herself silly, she took a step towards the painting, trying to fathom what about it gave her the shivers. She was a little disconcerted by the shimmering stars, shaped like an eye, but she put her fear to one side and drew closer. 
as if hypnotised, her hand reached out to touch the black canvas, and as her manicured fingers touched the painting, something unfathomable occurred. The stars grew brighter and larger. It was as if she'd given life to the painting. It went from being a one-dimensional canvas to what looked like a doorway to somewhere else. Unable to believe what she was seeing, her head disappeared into her neck, her shoulders scrunched up, and her eyes squinted half shut as her head moved in for a closer look. The innocuous, sparkling stars transmuted into heads without bodies. She couldn't quite make out the features, but the one thing they all had in common was that their mouths were open in a silent scream. Debbie wanted to pull her hand back in horror, but she could not, because she had no control over her limbs. Her feet shuffled closer to the wall until she was standing with her nose right up against the painting, and it seemed to her that she was no longer looking at a painting, but through a window into another world. She tried to step back. Her brain sent the command to her feet and her hands, but to no avail. The room had turned icy cold, yet Debbie could feel rivulets of sweat snaking down her ribcage. All she could hear was the pounding of her heart. Convinced that she was going to be the next person to disappear from 40 Bestland Street, she started to mourn her own impending demise. Uppermost in her mind was the question of who would miss her passing. Both her parents had died in a car crash several years ago, and the only brother she had, she only heard from occasionally. She had no close friends to speak of, and she regarded her work colleagues as acquaintances. The only person whom she could think of that might miss her for more than five seconds was her boyfriend, Alessandro. But with time, she was sure she wouldn't even be a memory to him. Her life, when summed up, seemed paltry, and she knew that that was the real tragedy of her existence. Her reverie took a millisecond, and as she felt her fingers turning into blocks of ice, she mentally willed her feet to move. The tears that rolled down her face turned into shards of icicles. She'd almost given up hope when she heard faint noises from what she thought was next door. She could hear a mother calling her daughter. Luciana! Luciana! Luciana, where you go? Over and over again. Although invisible cords held her rooted to the spot, her vocal cords were in perfect physical condition and she decided to exercise them as she screamed for help. The louder she screamed, the louder the woman's voice became. As she stared into the void of blackness, one of the heads drew nearer and larger. She could make out the features of a woman with long, flowing hair and realised with a shock that it was her calling for Luciana. An arm materialised and reached towards her, but her limbs finally collapsed and she fell to the ground in a dead faint. A brass candelabrum sat in the centre of the servants' dining table, its meagre light banishing the encroaching darkness and casting shadows across the faces of those seated around it. Still shaken by the disappearance of Lady Elspeth, the conversation was in whispers as they speculated on what had happened. Despite the pernicious atmosphere that pervaded the house since her disappearance, the servants valiantly tried to go about their daily business, 
Every molecule of dust had been overturned, as every room in each wing was meticulously searched. Yet the lady of the manor had still not been found, and no one had a rational explanation for her vanishing act. In the meantime, a post-chaise had been summoned, and the letter was sent to convey the bad tidings. All that was left to do was to wait for his arrival, and the inevitable axe which was bound to fall on their heads. The only good news they had was Elizabeth's miraculous recovery from her mysterious ailment. The little one wants chicken broth, said Elizabeth's nurse and nanny, as she carried an uneaten tray of food into the kitchen, interrupting the servants' dinner. She ignored the suspicious looks as the whispers stopped. Instead, she focused her attention on the rosy-faced cook, who shot up from her seat and bustled over to a brewing pot of broth. She ladled some into a small bowl and handed the tray back to the nurse, who nodded stiffly at the rest of the servants before leaving. This is a bad business, mark my words. She fancies herself as Lady of the Manor. His lordship should have left her in the colonies. She ain't no gentlewoman, and no amount of fancy dressing will make her one, the cook said in a loud whisper. Mrs Jones, the housekeeper, gave her a disapproving look but she ignored the subtle warning, choosing instead to air her ill feelings. Where has she been? I bet every farthing I own, she knows what's what. Probably used some of the black magic she brought back with her from over there. Four bairns gone, and the mistress disappears into thin air. You bet she knows what's what. The terrified eyes of the rest of the servants met and collided across the table. Utensils were laid down and appetites disappeared as their imaginations ran wild. The unvoiced consensus was to give the nurse a wide berth, more afraid of what they thought she was capable of than the wrath of their master whose arrival was imminent. Debbie leaned against her car and stared up at number 40 Beslin Street, Underneath her cosy mac, her forearms had turned to goose flesh, and she could hear the increased staccato beat of her heart on the almost silent street. Debbie's mind flashed back to the incident with the painting, and her body contorted with a visceral fear that threatened to cripple her. She looked towards the apple tree, and although she could barely see its outline, a pair of glowing emeralds betrayed the cat's presence. She didn't know how it had gotten into the house that day, but she knew when she woke up and saw it standing guard over her that it had had something to do with saving her from disappearing forever. That had been six months ago, and she had categorically refused to enter the house since. She got back into her car, locked the doors, and turned her head away from the bedroom window. She needed a cigarette, but had given up because Alessandro hated her smoking. During one of their frequent rows, he had told her that kissing her had been like making out with an ashtray. At the time, she'd been trying to quit for over a year. After that, she tried even harder and had managed to get her 20-a-day habit down to almost zero. However, she still craved the rapid, psychoactive effect of nicotine released in her brain. She needed the nicotine rush to calm her nerves which is why she kept a packet in her bag for such occasions. Her hands shook as she emptied the contents of her soft leather bag onto the passenger seat, hoping to find the familiar green box amongst the house keys, tampons, lipstick, mints, wallets and loose change, the latest opus from her favourite author, 
the USB key she'd spent all afternoon searching for and her two mobile phones. Not a cigarette in sight, which meant Alessandro had been in her bag. Puffs of cold carbon dioxide mingled with the smell of leather, sweat and perfume. Debbie's hand reached into the glove compartment and she willed her shaking limbs into the stillness of a mountain. There were no cigarettes in there and she almost sobbed with despair. She remembered passing a corner shop two streets away and decided to drive there and from there drive home and, if possible, arrange to meet Lucy James somewhere along the way. Just as she picked up her phone to make the call, she heard and then saw the moving van pull into the tree-lined street. A blonde, diminutive woman jumped down from the passenger side as soon as the van stopped. Debbie breathed in deeply, smoothed invisible wrinkles from her pencil skirt, put on her professional mask and got out of her car to meet her. I'm so terribly sorry I'm late. Traffic on the A40 was simply horrendous. I'm so glad we're moving closer to town. The commute had been murder for Jason. He doesn't get to see Erica before she goes to bed and she's a daddy's girl. Mrs James, I'm Debbie Cade. Oh, call me Lucy. Thank you so much for waiting. She glanced at her watch. Oh, my gosh, is that the time? She looked worriedly behind her. My husband is with the other truck and our daughter. She stood surveying the property. It's too dark to see much, but I feel like I've been here before. Driving down the street, I felt like I was coming home. Silly, I know. To be honest, I don't care where we live as long as it's in town and we get to be a proper family. I mean, the commute was killing him and our relationship too. And this place is so cheap, we'll be able to save quicker for a deposit on our own place. Debbie closed her eyes briefly and pinched the bridge of her nose. She could feel the inevitable approach of a whopping headache as Lucy's high, girly voice continued to witter on. This is such a lovely surprise for me. I've been nagging Jason for ages that we need to move closer to his job. He's a junior accountant with Uxton Associates. Once he passes his exams and becomes fully qualified, things won't be so bad. It's not easy, though. His hours are long and he barely has time to study. We'll get through it, though. Good things, they say, come to those who work for it. I was... Lucy stopped mid-sentence as she spotted the dazed look on Debbie's face. I'm sorry, too much information, huh? Jason tells me I have a tendency to overshare. I can't help myself. She sighed, then flashed an absent-minded smile at Debbie as she reached into her cavernous bag, pulled out a slim mobile phone and switched it on. The driver had moved to the back of the truck and was preparing to disgorge the James's worldly goods onto the pavement. I hate the damn things, but Jason insists I carry it. One second, please. I need to find out where he is. She moved away. Mm, mumbled Debbie, not sure what to make of her client as she wandered off for her private chat. She covertly watched Lucy as she spoke into her mobile, expansively waving her spare hand like an orchestral conductor. She concluded Lucy wasn't a conventional beauty. Her face was too round and leaning towards fat. Standing next to her, Debbie had felt like a giant. She estimated her height to be a couple of inches over five feet at the most. The kind of woman her ex referred to as a pocket Venus delicately curvaceous in all the right places. She noted that although the clothes Lucy wore weren't from the designer stores she frequented, 
They were chic, and she'd put them together with her own sense of style. From the baby noises Lucy was making, Debbie gathered she was speaking to her daughter, and she suppressed a bubble of resentment that rose like bile as she observed Lucy smiling into the phone. It transformed her face from the ordinary to the angelic. An overwhelming sense of sadness enveloped her as the steel door she'd kept tightly closed suddenly whispered open. She felt the muscles in her abdomen tighten as a physical pain grabbed her. She momentarily wished she was Lucy James with the loving husband and adorable daughter. A long time ago, she had resigned herself to what was, and she was done railing against fate. Would you believe it? The van had a puncture. Sod's friggin' law. I mean, this is what happens when he throws a surprise. Typical man didn't think about the logistics of moving house. I could kill him sometimes. Debbie said nothing, feeling unqualified to offer advice on her matrimonial affairs. Not wanting to look at her directly, which would elicit a response, Debbie glanced over at the van driver instead, who was filling up the pavement with boxes. He just put a barbecue grill under a denuded tree. I was going to throw a barbecue tomorrow, said Lucy, following Debbie's line of sight. It's my birthday, and I was going to invite all the neighbours. Debbie unconsciously smoothed the tendrils that had escaped from her chignon behind her ear and inwardly shuddered at the idea of her own upcoming birthday. She watched her surreptitiously, slightly envious of her client's unabashed flush of youth. The soft light from the street lamps made Lucy's features sizzle with the coquettishness of a forties celluloid femme fatale, which seemed at odds with the sweet-tempered innocence emanating from her. Who had time to throw a barbecue a day after they had just moved in, especially in autumn with unpredictable weather, Debbie wondered to herself. She remembered her first night in the big city after the death of her parents. She'd hated the quietness of Wavery and had felt stifled by the little village mentality, so at the first opportunity she had escaped to the big city, and although she delighted in her anonymity, in those first months she'd felt extremely lonely. She, however, hadn't had the courage to invite her new neighbours round for a barbecue. With no garden, there was little chance of that happening anyway. She wasn't sure where the Jameses were moving from, but she felt a spark of kinship that made her feel slightly protective towards Lucy. I'd be lucky if the moving people finish in time, continued Lucy, interrupting her reverie. Debbie looked at her watch again and knew there was no way she'd be able to get home in time to pull off her Nigella moment of glory. Besides, she was starting to like the child bride, as she dubbed her in her mind. She looked across at the goose house and shivered. Although no lights were on, the house seemed to have come alive. The malevolence that swaddled the residence was still there, but wrapped up with it with a sense of anticipation she couldn't explain. Debbie felt uneasy about leaving Lucy alone with the van driver, who was still unloading boxes. She wanted to tell her about the goose house, but wasn't quite sure what she should say or where she would start. She felt honour-bound to reveal the fact that no tenant had lasted more than three nights in the house. Instead, she handed over the house keys and ignored the voice in her head. 
Here are the keys. I've really got to get going. Now, as per the instructions, the house has been emptied of all furniture. Not that there was much to begin with. The only thing left is the painting in the master bedroom. It seems it's been stuck on with superglue. Rather than damage the plaster, it's been left on the wall. The painting... Her cheery demeanour suddenly changed. Her eyes glazed over and her movements all of a sudden became clumsy as the keys that had just been handed to her slid through her fingers. Her breathing became more shallow as she struggled for breath. Are you okay? Do you need to sit down? Would you like some water? I've got some in the car, asked Debbie, gently guiding Lucy to her car. Please tell me about this painting, grabbing Debbie's arm with desperation. It's a painting of the sky at night with stars. Shaped like an eye, Lucy asked. Uh, sort of, I guess. Wondering how Lucy could possibly know, considering she'd never been to the house. Oh, my God, it's real. She sat on the back seat of Debbie's car and put her head between her knees and took big gulps of air. I thought it was a nightmare, but it's real. It's... It exists. I didn't dream it. She paused to catch her breath and raised watery eyes to Debbie's. Oh, my God! It's in there! They both looked towards the goose house and Debbie could not prevent the shudder that racked her. You know something, don't you? asked Lucy, searching Debbie's eyes. She looked away. I don't really know much, she lied. You saw them, didn't you? Lucy James stared at her unblinkingly. Debbie, who was crouched down beside the open car door, rose and shifted uncomfortably away. She had never told anyone what she'd seen. Sometimes she went days without remembering, then something would trigger the memory. She tried to convince herself she'd been hallucinating but the images were too sharply etched into her brain to be anything but a real event. But she wasn't sure she wanted to share it with a complete stranger. Lucy followed her. Saw who? Debbie asked, avoiding answering the question. In the painting. You saw them? Debbie shivered and wrapped her arms around herself as she involuntarily glanced up to the master bedroom. Even this far away, she didn't feel safe. Not wanting to answer the question, she asked one instead. How do you know about the painting? You never came to view the house. We sent your husband pictures because he was too busy to come and see it in person. There used to be a swing under that apple tree. I was four at the time. A light dawned in Debbie's eyes. You're her. The little girl. Not so little anymore. Lucy attempted to joke. There was a silence as the women assessed each other. But you're not Polish, blurted Debbie, as she remembered that the first family to vanish from the goose house 25 years ago were Polish. Another thing I've lost, Lucy responded, her voice barely audible. The front and back doors were locked from the inside and the alarm was on. With no bodies, it left the police baffled said Debbie. Yes. Debbie waited for her to elaborate, but just got a blank stare back. Lucy had retreated. 
Each woman was unwilling to share their horrifying memory because to put it into words was to make it real. Lucy looked across at the house. I can't live here. Well, where are you going to go? asked Debbie. I don't know. I just know. I can't stay here. They both looked up at the house and framed in the bay window like a family portrait were the faces of Lucy's missing parents and the mysterious woman who haunted Debbie's dreams. They both gasped with shock. Papa, said Lucy. This isn't real, said Debbie. Their vision narrowed and everything but the goose house disappeared from their peripheral sight. Although it was a quiet street, everything became unnaturally still. And then, as if compelled by the call of a siren, the two women walked with weighted limbs towards Number 40 Bestland Street. As they drew closer, a gust of wind blew the door open. With it came the whispering voice. Luciana, Elizabeth. Welcome home. And there you have it, the amazing Donna Kroll. I hope you enjoyed that and thank you for listening. So on to the next podcast, it will feature the gorgeous Joy Elias Rimon and she'll be narrating Ego Betao which some of you might have heard on the BBC World Service. And the second story will be my mother's stew. So hopefully I will speak to you again soon. In the meantime, if you need to get in touch with me, uh, Twitter is always good or my website via the contact page, www.shardays-world.com. And my Twitter handle is at imagine underscore this. Bye.